You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can improve my content for you, the listener, shoot me a message on Twitter at Ellis A. Tucci. I would love to hear from you. To catch up on all my past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. This is the fourth part in my series on labor. If you want to get a little background on what I'll be talking about this week, you can start back at episode 48, which covers labor relations all the way back in ancient times. Now that that's out of the way, let's get on to the show. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 51, Taft Hartley. Now, the name of this episode might seem a bit odd, but if you're familiar with American labor or legislative history, you'll know that it's in reference to the Taft-Hartley Act, which is going to be an important topic in this week's episode. Taft-Hartley was signed into law over President Truman's veto in 1947, but if you'll recall, last episode ended around 1920, so in order to talk about this week's titular piece of legislation, you know what that means. That's right, it's time to talk about historical context. Let's pick up where we left off, shall we? Moving into the 1920s, a new important issue cropped up during strikes. Race. Now, race had always been a part of the politics of organized labor, with some unions outright refusing to organize black-skilled laborers. But on the sugar plantations of 1920s Hawaii, race was used to a different divisive end. The field laborers of Hawaii were a multiracial coalition of mainly Filipino and Japanese laborers, with smaller numbers of immigrants from Southern Europe, Central America, Central Asia, and the Caribbean. Before the start of World War I, conditions on the plantations were maintained at a bare poverty level, but the onset of the war increased the cost of living for these workers, and all the while their wages stagnated. Men on horseback patrolled the fields with whips, and workers were kept intentionally segregated so that they couldn't organize. During previous strikes, when one racial or ethnic group of laborers began to protest conditions on the Oahu plantations, the other groups were brought in as strikebreakers. This, however, would not always be the case. After World War I ended, the conditions on the sugar plantations did not improve, which caused the Filipino workers to begin striking on January 20th, 1920. This was soon followed by the Japanese workers' official entrance to the strike on February 1st. In response, plantation owners evicted over 12,000 people from their on-site housing, causing them to move into abandoned buildings, tent cities, and whatever temples and shrines would house them. Speaking about these refugees, Ralph Kuykendall and A. Grove Day say in their book Hawaii, A History, that, quote, about half of these came to Honolulu, which was in the throes of an influenza epidemic, and it was estimated that about 1,200 members of the strikers' families died of this disease. Though the strike was ultimately successful, winning a 50% pay raise over the course of six months, it took a large toll on the strikers themselves. Not to mention the deaths from influenza, it exacerbated racial tensions among the Hawaiian planter class, which is something that's going to come up a little bit later in the episode. But until then, let's move forward a little bit in time so I can cover the Columbine Massacre of 1927. 
The Colorado Coal Strike of 1927 bears a good deal of similarity to the previous Colorado mining conflicts, specifically the 1903 Cripple Creek Miner Strike and the 1913 Colorado Coalfield War, which ended in the Ludlow Massacre, resulting in the deaths of 25 people. One of the things that ties these strikes into a larger narrative is their relationship with violence. None of these conflicts were resolved peacefully, and as a result, the government of Colorado gained a reputation for brutally violent and illegal tactics for dealing with labor disputes. In 1904, Henry Floton, a general goods dealer from Telluride, wrote these words of the state of life in Colorado, set to the tune of My Country Tis of Thee. Colorado Tis of Thee dark land of tyranny of thee I sing. Land wherein labors bled, land from which law has fled. Bow down thy mournful head, capital is king. This state of the union continued on for over 20 years, and after a number of failed strikes throughout the state, on September 4, 1927, the industrial workers of the world called for coal miners across Colorado to lay down their picks in solidarity with one another. One of the instigating causes for the timing of the strike was the execution of Niccolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, who I talk about in the tail end of last episode. But let's talk about the Columbine Mine. The mine itself was located in the small, deceptively named shantytown of Serene, which Phyllis Smith described in her book Once a Coal Miner as, quote, a collection of dirty company houses surrounded by a barricade of barbed wire, illuminated at night by a giant searchlight that was installed on the Columbine tipple. In addition to living quarters for the employees of the Columbine, Serene boasted a church, a gambling hall, general store, mess hall, a house of prostitution, and the United States Post Office. Cut off from the world and from outside workers, despite its name, Dingy Little Serene epitomized the conditions the miners were striking against. As strikes swept across the rest of the Colorado mines, the Columbine Mine in Serene became one of the only mines that remained in operation. For two weeks, organizers had been holding rallies in Serene and successfully organizing the miners. That changed the morning of November 21st, 1927, when 500 protesters approached the mine. Unbeknownst to them, they would be met with the remnants of the Colorado Rangers, which had been disbanded by an act of government on April 1st of that year. The former Rangers no longer had governmental authority. They were dressed in civilian clothes, but were armed with rifles, shotguns, machine guns, and tear gas. Behind them, on the hill housing the Columbine Mine, stood scores of mine guards with their rifles trained on the protesters. The strikers were unarmed. From the throng of armed thugs, a call came out demanding the strikers to identify their leader. The workers and their families responded resoundingly. We are all leaders, they said. This did not please the police, who instigated a brawl, beating the protesters with clubs, which strikers later claimed were lengths of metal pipe. The strikers overpowered the men and climbed the fence surrounding the town. The armed men retreated, returned to formation, and fired indiscriminately into a crowd that contained women and children. Witness testimony claimed that the protesters were ruthlessly cut down in a hail of bullets from a machine gun mounted above the mine. The police testified that they never used it, but the use of the machine gun was ultimately immaterial. Six strikers lay dead, 
dozens were seriously injured. There would be no justice for the victims of the Columbine Mine Massacre. It was just a singular part in the larger coal wars, a series of conflicts across the United States that started in the 1890s and would rage on into the 1930s. Before I talk about the next important chronological development in American labor relations, I want to do a plug for a related episode. On December 5th, 1928, in the Colombian city of Cienaga, at the behest of the United Fruit Company, the government sent the army to deal with striking workers. In doing so, they murdered between 800 and 3,000 people. The total death count is unknown. The bodies were thrown into the sea. If you want to learn more about this tragic event, as well as the history of United Fruit and the American cultural significance of the banana, check out episode 11. Now, back to the topic at hand. The next strike I'm going to talk about is important in two ways. The first is that it helped in the creation of a national labor movement, and the second being that it represents labor relations in a transitional period, when the United States was entering into the Great Depression. It's time to talk about the Luray Mill Strike of 1929. Some background. Just like the Oahu Sugar Strike of 1920, World War I had a huge impact on the Luray Textile Mill in Gastonia, North Carolina. Except, instead of stagnating wages in the face of rising costs of living, the massive increase in demand for cotton products saw a boom in the wages of textile workers. But there were storm clouds on the horizon. The end of the war not only eliminated the need for the glut of governmental cotton products, but the post-war depression saw the general demand for cotton steadily deflate. In an attempt to save the bottom line, mill owners introduced a series of policies that were collectively known as the stretch-out system, which essentially was the overextension of workers' responsibilities to superhuman levels. For example, instead of keeping watch over 26 looms, one Gastonia weaver now had to monitor 78. Instead of 48 looms, one worker had to monitor 99. This massive increase in workload was not only coupled with a system that saw employee pay docked for fabric imperfections that were the fault of the machine, but it coincided with a decrease in pay for Gastonia's weavers. Efficiency experts, dubbed Minutemen by the workers due to their habit of timing every possible action, descended on the town from the industrialized north, offering multiple new avenues through which mill output could be increased. One of these ways was through the elimination of all breaks, including at mealtimes. Weavers would now work constantly, eating and drinking at the loom to keep their productivity as high as possible. Wages continued to sink lower and lower, and by the end of the 1920s, the National Textile Workers Union, an actively communist labor union, had focused their sights on organizing the small North Carolina town. Their efforts were successful, and on March 30, 1929, the weavers at the Gastonia Mill voted unanimously in favor of a strike. They demanded a 40-hour week, a guaranteed wage of at least $20 a week, an end to the stretch-out system, and the recognition of their union. The mill owners responded by refusing to negotiate and evicting the weavers from their housing. In many cases, a response like this would have broken the strike, but not in Gastonia. 
Yes, some workers were forced to return to the mill, as they were without homes and couldn't afford to feed their families. But for hundreds of others still on the picket line, the National Textile Workers Union sent up a tent city to accommodate for their needs. Under pressure from the mill owners, the town's mayor, John Rankin, asked the governor to send for the National Guard. He agreed, and on April 3rd, 150 National Guardsmen arrived in Gastonia to suppress the strike. Things slowly escalated for months, until June 7, 1929, when an altercation at the strikers' camp resulted in the death of the chief of police and the injury of several strikers. As a result, authorities arrested 71 strikers in connection with the death, and ultimately, eight would go to trial for a charge of second-degree murder. Due to complications with the jury, it was declared a mistrial, sparking waves of anti-union paranoia throughout North Carolina and, to a lesser extent, in the country. Between the announcement of the mistrial and the retrial, vigilante groups all over the state ran rampant with anti-union violence. On September 14th, vigilantes chased down a truck packed with 22 strikers and opened fire, killing a prominent organizer of the Larray strike, Ella Mae Wiggins. She was pregnant. Her five children were sent to live in orphanages, and even though her murder was committed in broad daylight in the presence of over 50 eyewitnesses, those who had been accused of her slaying were acquitted by a jury within half an hour. Her gravestone reads, she died carrying the torch of social justice. After the murder of Ella Mae Wiggins, the strike in Gastonia largely collapsed. Wiggins had been a prominent organizer with the National Textile Workers Union, and after her death, union representatives came to believe that they were simply not strong enough to challenge the economic interests of mill owners. But even though the strike was a failure, it's important in that it signifies a break with the anti-union tradition of the American South, and helped bring labor issues to the national stage. The Luray strike was not alone in this effort, however. The strike occurred during the same time frame as a number of other textile strikes throughout the South, all with the same relative goals. It was the visceral response to Luray, however, that put it all over the top and turned labor into a national issue. Now, it's time to jump forward again in our chronology. Another episode plug, the next thing that I would cover would be the Harlan County War, but it turns out that I've actually already done an episode on that. If you want to learn anything about a really vicious, prolonged conflict that lasted throughout the 1930s, listen to episode 17. But now it's time to talk about labor relations in the Great Depression. In the first few years of the Depression, the role of organized labor in American life looked pretty grim. In 1933, there were about 3 million unionized laborers in the United States, compared to 5 million in 1923. But then something changed. Roosevelt was elected president, and the decidedly pro-union stance of his presidency helped change the course of organized labor in the United States. There were two pieces of legislation that largely contributed to this change. The National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, which permanently legalized collective bargaining, and the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, which mandated that employers bargain with any union that was supported by a majority of its employees. It's worth noting, however, that the NERA was eventually declared unconstitutional in 1935 as a result of a ruling from the Supreme Court case ALA Schechter Poultry Corporation v. United States, 
which stated that the National Industrial Recovery Act violated the non-delegation doctrine, which essentially means that Congress could not offload the enforcement of given legislation to another branch of government. But besides this hiccup, the Great Depression was a boon for labor unions, and their numbers skyrocketed throughout the 30s. But that doesn't mean that there were no strikes. The Great Depression was a time of incredible economic destitution. And as a result, we have things like the 1932 Ford hunger strike, the 1934 Kohler strikes, and the 1937 Little Steel Memorial Day massacre. The 1930s were no picnic for organized labor. And as we continue on into the 1940s, we have more of the same. The massive gains of labor continued on to the first years of the 40s, but American entry into World War II saw a massive number of Union laborers enlisting or being drafted to fight overseas. This, coupled with stagnating wages, began to ferment discontent among labor unions. Once the war ended, it all kind of exploded. Throughout 1945 and 1946, a massive wave of strikes swept the nation. They involved everyone from railroad workers and coal miners to auto workers and film crews. In the end, over 5 million Americans took part in the strikes, and although they may have resulted in some short-term gains for the participating sectors, they resulted in something that was essentially the poison pill for organized labor. That's right. It's time to talk about the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. <laughs> it's about damn time. Wait, 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 shit. So I, I promised earlier that I was going to talk more about labor issues on Hawaiian sugar plantations, so let's do that first. It turns out that it fits in the chronology pretty well, too. So before I talk about Taft-Hartley, I'm going to talk about the Hawaiian sugar strike of 1946. So I've already covered, to some extent, the dreadful conditions on the plantations, which were only a few degrees separate from slave labor. So let's talk about the organizing efforts. By 1945, the plantation workers had finally achieved a union through organizing in secret. They overcame racial barriers by structuring the body of their union in a way that demanded equal representation. This new union put representatives on boats that shipped in new workers, ensuring that everyone that stepped onto Hawaiian soil was either a union member or ready to become one. They organized for and achieved a 43.5 cent per hour minimum wage in 1945, and seeing the power in their hand, bargained for a number of other demands the following year, like a 60 cent per hour wage, a fixed 40 hour work week, a closed shop, and the abolition of predatory wage garnishment tactics. The plantation owners refused to agree in whole to the terms laid out by the laborers, and so the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union called for a strike that shut down 33 of the 34 Hawaiian sugar refineries. In a hugely impressive show of organization, the ILWU resisted all efforts to quash the strike. When plantation owners attempted to starve out the strikers by refusing to sell rice in local stores, the ILWU imported it from the mainland. When the lack of income from the strikers meant that some would be evicted from their homes, ILWU leadership told landlords that if a single worker was evicted, the wrath of all 25,000 strikers would rain down upon them. Throughout the course of the strike, not a single person was evicted. Eventually, the strikers got their raise, an end to predatory wage practices, and a decrease in work hours, though they ended up conceding on their demand for a closed shop. The strike was won, 
It ended up costing sugar producers the equivalent of $173,029,000 in lost revenue, earning it the title of one of the most expensive strikes in history. Okay, now I can talk about Taft-Hartley. The Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, also known as the Labor Management Relations Act, was passed in response to the wave of strikes that hit the nation throughout 45 and 46. And what it did was essentially eviscerate the powers that unions could have and the actions they could take. Taft-Hartley outlawed general strikes, mass picketing, closed shops, and jurisdictional strikes, which are strikes protesting the assignment of a job to a group outside the union that would normally receive it. Taft-Hartley also amended the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, a New Deal policy, and made it legal for employers to mandate anti-union programming in the workplace. But to talk about the most devastating impact of the legislation, I'm going to have to talk about deception, racism, and the right to work. Right-to-work laws are among the most deceptively named pieces of legislation you'll find on the books. These laws don't guarantee a job to everyone who wants one. Rather, they make it illegal for union membership to be a condition of employment. There are currently 27 states that have enacted right-to-work laws. So, to finish out this episode, I want to talk about the man who's responsible for creating them, a right-wing segregationist named Vance Muse. His own grandson described him as, quote, a white supremacist, an anti-Semite, and a communist baiter. A man who beat on labor unions not on behalf of working people, as he said, but because he was paid to do so. This was a man who had vehemently opposed the woman's right to vote and wanted to repeal the eight-hour workday. He called the New Deal the Jew Deal and said it was part of a vast conspiracy to turn America into a Soviet nation. Muse used his right-to-work proposals as a means to uphold white supremacy. It wasn't a coincidence that the first laws were adopted in the Jim Crow South. Right-to-work was never about empowering workers. It was about taking a voice away from those who were already voiceless. Muse said that, quote, From now on, white women and white men will be forced into organizations with black African apes whom they will have to call brother or lose their jobs. It was always about race. It was always about maintaining power structures. It's actually difficult to find quotes from Vance Muse, not because they're hard to find, but because a lot of them, one, I don't feel comfortable saying, and two, would prevent me from broadcasting this episode on the radio. Like I said before, right-to-work laws, the racist motivations of which serve only to divide and oppress, are still on the books in 27 states. And maybe one of them is yours. I'd encourage you to do some research on Vance Muse and the history of Right to Work, so that you can read some of the things that I couldn't say during this episode. And if you find that it disgusts you enough, call your representatives and let them know how you feel about Right to Work laws in your state. Better yet, if they're intractable, which they probably will be, start organizing to defeat them in their next election. Only through collective action can we help realize a better future for us all. Tune in next week to hear the final part of my series on labor history. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.